Welcome, everybody, to this final edition of the second season of Northern Spin. I'm Michael Taylor. I'm a journalist, a politico, and I'm the editor of the Business Desk in the Northwest. And this, who are you again? Um, happy Clappy, Mr. Positive himself, Chris, only published good news, Maguire, which is exactly what you said last week. Actually, I've got a confession to make. Today, I thought I'd dress down by getting rid of my tie, only to turn up for this recording on Monday. And Michael Taylor's wearing his three-piece suit. So, uh, yeah, if I'm Mr. Happy Clappy, then you are Mr. Doom and Gloom Taylor. And if you think I'm being harsh, then you can prove me wrong in this episode, the 10th episode of Northern Spin Season 2. Now, I've got some good news to start, which won't surprise you for a second. The last two episodes of Northern Spin have been among the two most downloaded episodes of the podcast Ever. Brilliant. Once um, we're doing something right. We are, we are, absolutely. Um, we've obviously got big families. 18% increase in subscribers. The good news doesn't end there. Although this might be the final episode of season two and people out there will be thinking, oh no. Uh, the news is series three will be back. We've been having talks with our friends at What Media. They're watching us as always, recording this podcast. Our sponsors at Oscar Technology and your agents, who've driven a very hard bargain. And we are doing a third season of Northern Spin. Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker-Houchin, you'll be delighted. We're doing it for you, Ben. Yeah, so we're here to provide not only observation, but insight, to give some behind-the-scenes glimpses about what's going on in Northern politics, Northern life, Northern culture, business. And we think we can do that every time we do one of these podcasts don't we chris 100 yeah. yeah i'd like to think i'd like to thank not think i'd like to thank our sponsors at what media and lily technology oscar technology and lily shippen isn't it absolutely you morphed the two together there i have yeah oscar technology and lily shippen now oscar's consultants truly are specialists in the world of technical roles that they recruit for they're trained about the technologies that their candidates work on and they use data to provide market insights for their clients so what trends are you seeing in tech recruitment chris well i was talking to oscar but i was also talking to a number of tech companies last week there's definitely a move towards bringing employers back into the workplace um i think we've had covid obviously we're still living with covid but there's definitely a move to try and bring them back into the workplace as well not just them as well but uh, but everybody politicians and civil servants as well uh, personal thanks as well to uh, marple resident we're going to talk about marple a lot today andy morell he's the ceo of oscar you know five episodes into season one of Northern Spin. He phoned me up and he said, Chris, he said, we love what you and Michael are doing. We want to get behind it. It's great for the North. He sponsored us. He's come on board for the third series as well. Uh, and we're also, uh, hopefully, uh, Lily Shippen will join us as well. So thank you very much to those two. Lily, we'll be talking about Lily Shippen in part two of Northern Spin. Right. That's a lot to get through. A lot of thank yous there. But also, we've got quite an agenda, haven't we? What's on the news list? Well, this if this morning? was a news, this was a news bulletin, I'd be saying, Rishi Sunak gets nasty. The Tories and Labour draw up battle lines. Is the curtain coming down on Oldham's Coliseum Theatre? What is Mippen, and why should we be? Why should we bother? Why should we care about it? MP selections or deselections? What is Liz Truss up to? I still haven't got the answer to that. And what's Jeremy Corbyn doing? And finally, I go undercover in Marple, which is where you live, of course. So hold on a minute, Rishi Sunak gets nasty. I, yeah. can't, I can't quite see that one. So try and stand that argument. Okay. Up. So last week, really, really interesting because what you saw were two really distinct battle lines being drawn between the Conservatives and Labour. You can tell we're on an election footing. I know we're probably 18 months away from it. Um, I don't need to remind you, last week marked Sunak's first 100 days as Prime Minister. You probably got the champagne out. Something the PM marked with a very sugary video on social media. He doesn't really do social media very well, in my view. He doesn't he do was, anything very no, well. No, he doesn't do social media very well. <clears throat> um, he said, trust is earned and I will earn yours. I was going to do a... Uh, 
Rishi Sunak impression, but I can't do it. And others will talk about change. I will deliver it. Now, let's be honest. The first 100 days have been about steadying the ship after the disastrous Liz Trust Premiership. But one minister has said Sunak is to take his cashmere jumper off. So I think we've entered the second phase. Did somebody really say that? Yeah, somebody said that. Yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to enter the second phase of his premiership. Now, Labour continue to paint him as weak and small, something you've mentioned before on previous podcasts. I thought Sunak landed a blow on Keir Starmer at PMQ's uh, last week when he challenged a Labour leader about his MP, Rosie Duffield, who claimed Labour had a problem with women. If he can't be trusted to stand up for women in his party, Sunak said, he can't be trusted to stand up for Britain. That sounds like quite a nice line until you hear him say it, actually, it loses all its gravitas. The other clear and obvious dividing line is around strikes. We heard a lot about that over the weekend and unions. Sunak hasn't conceded an inch to the strikers, and he's trying to paint Starmer and the Labour Party as being in bed with his union paymasters. We hear that every PMQs. Sunak even did an interview with Piers Morgan. Now, I'm definitely sensing a change of approach to a more assertive Sunak. What do you think? I think he's got to be pretty desperate if he's having interviews with Piers Morgan on a, a TV station with probably even fewer viewers than us. <laughs> and it didn't, didn't, didn't do much for the career of Cristiano Ronaldo, <coughs> did it? Although, obviously, he went on to a to the wilderness and a, and a bigger paycheck, which maybe that's what uh, faces Sunak when he moves back to Silicon Valley. Just for the benefit of the viewers uh, on YouTube as well, I just had a mouthful of tea when you made me laugh there. Now, I think Piers Morgan's got 660,000 viewers, and we haven't got yeah, that many yet. Yeah, on his YouTube channel, but his, his yeah. talk TV channel, yeah. hardly anyone watches it. Yeah. That's why they've got Nadine Dorries on. Anyway, so let's talk about Sunak. He came in, right, his reputation was as a competent technocrat who was introduced as you, who wanted to introduce as you say integrity professionalism and accountability at every level level of government let's actually have a look at what's happened in that first 100 days the whole zahawi affair blows those claims at accountability and integrity right out of the water he appointed him so does his poor judgment over his wife avoiding tax on her foreign earnings and retaining non-dom status let's not forget too that Sunak's deputy is Dominic Raab, who Simon MacDonald, the former Whitehall Mandarin, who ultimately did for Boris Johnson when he caught him out on a lie, said at the weekend, Dominic Raab could be as abrasive and controlling and could genuinely see how people working for him felt bullied. Apparently one of Raab's techniques is to stop a meeting and go, I'm not continuing until I've got the right papers. You know, that kind of menacing tone that he bring, brings to things. By the way, someone somewhere should be running the Justice Department. It doesn't appear to be him. We can talk about that in a moment. Soon I tried to keep Gavin Williamson in the Tory Big Ten. And I always come back to this, Chris, what does he believe in? Like I said last week, what's his bigger picture? His five pledges, which he's pinning his survival on, are all about near-term fires to put out. Fires that for the most part his party have started. So what else can we expect from tough guy Sunak? Well, I don't think he's going to be starring in a remake of Die Hard anytime soon. Um, and it is important to give a sense of balance as well, because when you listen back to these podcasts, and a lot of people do, and they listen to them, they binge listen, a bit like Happy Valleys, which we'll be talking about later as well. Um, you find yourself changing slightly, and I'm not. You know, last week, I said Sunak had a terrible week as Prime Minister, probably his worst. I thought the handling of the Nadim Zahawi tax affair was a disaster. However, since sacking him 
last Sunday. I think he's done pretty well. I'm glad you mentioned Dominic Rab. Don't be surprised to see him bin Rab off uh, at record speed if and when this bullying report upholds the complaints against him, now totaling 24. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Rab fall on his sword and resign as well. Where Sunak is going to need to grow a backbone is standing up to some of the backbenchers as well because he's basically U-turned on a couple of things so far. I think the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol comes back to uh, Parliament this week. The small boats crossings are approaching and Sunak's newfound tough guy persona is going to be put to the test as well. Um, like, like I say, I, when we started the podcast, I wanted to try and provide some insight. I'm aware that it's more my commentary than insight. But uh, but but do you think, <coughs> I'm, do you think okay. I'm being too much of a... Too much of a fan club member. Yeah, yeah, well, you, you completely are. You've got you've got to take this in its round, and you've also got to look at the net results of, of his leadership. People just aren't buying into the idea that beyond these five pledges that he's got, that he's got anything to offer what the country will be like. I'm genu- I, I don't see it. You, um, so if Rob goes, right, and I hope he does, because I think it's, it's terrible what... Uh, what people seem to have been through who've worked for him. It'll be Suella Braverman next, who, who Labour will turn their spotlight on, as Yvette Cooper has done so quite effectively already. Or Therese Coffey, you know, or Michael Gove. Look, you know, Gove hasn't been true to his pledge to measure his achievements in levelling up. And every single report, not necessarily by um, by the Labour Party or trade unions or, or left-wing councils or or the, or the left-wing economists that did for Liz Truss at the weekend, you know, levelling up is not working. The gap is getting bigger. And that is one of the big issues that we as, you know, the Northern Spin podcast want to shine our light on. And Michael Gove has been completely absent from providing the data sets that would hold him to account. Again, one of the three pledges that Sunak said he'd bring to his government accountability. He might, have, he might not be providing the data sets that you want, but I think he has been front and centre in levelling up. Certainly in the last month and a half. I mean, obviously, we had the latest announcement of grants from the Leveling Up Fund 2. He was obviously at the uh, convention in Manchester two weeks ago as well. So he's not been absent, and he is making sure that Leveling Up is, 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 is getting discussed and it is on the agenda. And also, Rishi Sunak, when he did his sugary video to mark his 100 days, Leveling Up was all over that as well. Mm, it's not just about the soundbites, though, Chris. Come on, it's got to... Uh- ultimately be about whether places get leveled up, whether opportunities get created for people in so-called left behind towns or, you know, the, the coastal town they forgot to close down. Um, you know, just bunging a 50 million quid at the Eden Project in Morecambe is not a strategy to revive our seaside towns, nor is, you know, sweetheart deals for Blocker Ben Houchen and his mates up there in Teesside. Off killing crustaceans, but go on. You want to talk about Labour, don't you? Well, uh, just for the sake of record, as well, I know Blocker Ben Houchin has blocked us, but uh, for the sake of uh, we can say tra- what we want about him now. For the sake of transparency, as well, um, is that he denies, and there was a report which which didn't blame the Teesside dredging for the death of the crustaceans. But anyway, let's talk about Labour, um, a uh, subject you're familiar with. So this week is a huge week in terms of uh, in terms of strikes and industrial action. There's going to be even more industrial action. The Sun did a story last week to say. 160 Labour MPs have stood on picket lines. Worth making a point as well that Keir Starmer has banned his shadow cabinet from appearing on picket lines. There was a tweet which uh, which we both botted actually. It was from an official Conservative account um, revealed that Angela Rayner has received £264,552 in donations from the unions. Now she responded quite robustly on Twitter saying not quite the gotcha they think it is. I'm a proud trade unionist and Labour is the party of working people. 
their donations are clean, democratic, uh, dem- democratic and fully declared. Who funds the Conservatives? Do you think any of this stuff is landing, before I give you my opinion? Well, I had a little look at some YouGov polling about the attitude towards the strikes and trade unions. Generally, the closest people are to the delivery of the services, the more sympathetic they are to the people who are in dispute, basically the nurses. Um, but there's a lot more sympathy for the train drivers than you would expect. It's around... The public opinion is split about three ways, 30% broadly sympathetic, 30% outright hostile, and another 30% fairly undecided, and it, it sort of wavers depending on the on who it is who's striking. I think Angela Rayner's response was pretty good. I, 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 my basic contention is that trade union money is the cleanest money in politics. How many Tory MPs would actually proudly boast you know, I am a proud advocate for the nuclear industry and I'm really pleased that they've given me 250 grand or or a telecoms company that are sticking up masts in my constituency if you're a, one of the Northern Research Group MPs that got some money from IX Telecom. They're not. They're embarrassed by it because it's dirty money. You're expected to do something in return. The only, thing that the tra- the only things the trade union movement expect the Labour Party to do is to do what Labour MPs are elected to do, which is stand up for working people, for people who, who go to work to earn a living and often, in many cases, may even be members of trade unions. And I know you'll throw back at me the, the decline in membership over a, the course of our lifetimes. But a friend of mine got made redundant last week and due to the support of his trade union uh, community, as it happens, and the legal advice that they provided, he's got a settlement that his young family can have some comfort as he looks to try and find a new job over the course of the next few months and not think that he's going to you know, have to start with precarious employment somewhere else. I like to see trade unions defending people's rights in the workplace. It's their purpose. And since I've been a member of the community union, I've really enjoyed their seminars and their advice for newly self-employed people. I've seen the huge retraining programs they've got for people in an ever-changing economy. And I must admit, Chris, I saw Sharon Graham from Unite on Laura Koonsberg, and I thought she was excellent. Partly, you might think she was a bit feisty, but I thought she was excellent because she was specifically talking about standing up for members and about the terms of their dispute. Where she differs from Len McCluskey is he was always about the internal battles in the Labour Party and trying to gain an advantage. It was a million miles away from that big boss macho politics of Len McCluskey and his attempts to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership at all costs. Len McCluskey, Len McCluskey was brilliant for the Conservatives because <laughs> what he did, it painted the uh, trade unions to be this, these monsters. And, and you're right, there's definitely a softer face to the trade unions now. I thought, and I differ from you slightly, but I didn't watch the uh, Laura Koonsberg interview, but I heard the interviews afterwards. I thought Sharon Graham was, was belligerent. Um, and obviously, I get the point. She's standing up for members. That's her job. She, she says that uh, her pay demands could be met by the government through windfall taxes on the energy companies. Even Labour, I listened to the Westminster show this morning, said that wouldn't pay for years two and three and four. So there is this idea that these money trees exist and they don't. Um, and I'll tell you one thing as well, is that the longer these industrial actions go on for, do you think the public are going to stay on the side of the strikers or do you think they're going to lose support? Because my impression, and like I say, it's only anecdotally, is that the strikes break down into people have support for the nurses. They get that. I think the rail workers, people think, oh, this has been going on forever. And I think the teachers is, is, is one which I don't think they've got the same level of support of the health sector. Now, that's only an opinion, but, but that's, that's my view. What's your view? 
I think it's going to be interesting as time goes on and how people's lives are disrupted. I think that's definitely going to be a key factor in whether people are sympathetic to strikes or not. But um, I think it's also about how the trade unions themselves communicate what they're doing. I think they've been very clear. I think as long as he doesn't stray out of his lane too much, Mick Lynch is a very good communicator for the situation about what is going on on the railway and how they've basically had a pay cut for the last few years. And I think as people experience... Um, you know, precarious employment, um, wage freezes, as long as they don't look outside and think, oh, yeah, why are they getting that in that kind of selfish way that I think the Daily Mail and the Sun want people to react. They actually, they think, well, fair play to you for having the, the ability, the smarts and the organisation in your workplace to stand up for what you want because I think people are genuinely struggling and they're seeing all over that uh, those who have the ability and the, and, the, and the smarts to be able to do it are... are uh, are striking. I typically, um, you know, on, on the interview on Sunday on Laura Koonsberg's show, she did what you're gonna, what you're trying to do to me is turn these disputes away from actually who's in government and make it an issue, an internal issue about the Labour Party, and it's it's on the government's watch. And Sharon Graham caught Grant Shapps out on a lie when he said about ambulance workers not providing cover for critical situations. Frankly, the NHS isn't providing critical basic. Um, service for those, um, you know, if you get run over by a car, are you going to get an ambulance in uh, anytime quickly? Probably not. Um, and that's under normal circumstances, never mind on a strike day. It's just, if you look at the stats, the stats are interesting because I thought, how many, I watched a program, you know, that's what I do at the weekend. I watched a program about, you know, about strikes. Uh, there are, there are just over 6 million trade union members in the UK. We have a population of over 60 million. So we have 6 million trade union members. The membership has dropped substantially in the last 20 years. Okay. I just make that point. Um, I don't think it was a great week for the Labour Party. I'll make one exception to that. Lindsay Hoyle, I thought is put down to Gullis. Uh, at PMQs was absolutely brilliant when he, uh, you know, he said that uh, if you're going to talk in that tone of voice, you can do it outside the chamber. I thought that was brilliant. Well, that's not good for Labour, though. That's just a, no, a deficit but, for the Tories. Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. think of Lindsay Hoyle as a Labour MP when he's performing his role as the neutral speaker. Yeah, but he is a, he is a Labour MP, but you're right. Yeah, he is neutral. Um, what about um, a Liverpool MP, Kim Johnson? She branded the Israeli government as, I quote, fascist. And used the term apartheid state. She was later criticised by Keir Starmer's spokesman, who described her remarks as unacceptable. And subsequently, she and she um, subsequently apologised. Now we've spoken before about this analogy, which Roy Jenkins used when uh, Tony Blair was in opposition and trying to win, uh, you know, the Labour uh, general election in 1997 for the Labour Party, is like carrying a priceless Ming vase and not wanting to drop it. Do you feel that the way? Um, Labour manoeuvred very quickly around Kim Johnson and got her to apologise, was driven by the desire not to drop this Ming vase. Let me just, let me deal with your first point first, if you don't mind. I'll come on to that one. I'm not ducking the issue. Trade unions, yes, they've declined, but in that intervening period, look at what has increased. Precarious employment, zero hours contracts, stagnant wages. You know, they are all the facets of a less unionised workplace work, workforce right let's just just hold that thought um the, the second point about you know holding the ming vase and holding things together i think it's actually for the labor party at the moment in opposition 20 points ahead in the polls it's about being quick and decisive over the very things that people thought labor were weak and slow on like in particular you know the debate on foreign policy issues where jeremy corbyn was out of step with most of British public opinion, it was unacceptable to describe Israel 
given its history as fascist. It is not the Labour Party policy to describe Israel as an apartheid state. It is perfectly acceptable to do what lots of Israeli citizens who live in the UK have been doing in the last week, which is protesting outside the embassy at Netanyahu's government and their appalling behaviour of the Israeli Defence Force in the refugee camp of Jenin in the West Bank. There's no problem with that. But I think what Starmer has done is clamp down pretty quickly on saying where the Labour Labour's line is. The trouble is that sort of language is commonplace and it comes very easily to people on the left of the Labour Party to describe Israel as an apartheid state. I'll tell you what, though, it's the only state in the Middle East I'd want to be, you'd want to be gay in. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Really, no, it's interesting. No, well, it's really anyway, interesting. you want to lighten the mood a yeah, bit. Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry we, about yeah, that. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, revealed, well, we didn't reveal, we discussed the fact that Rishi Sunak had uh, obviously been fined for uh, not putting his seatbelt on in Lancashire. And I noticed one wag this week had, uh, uh, had actually put a blue plaque in Lancashire to mark the spot where Rishi Sunak was, uh, you know, committing this heinous crime. I mean, it just goes to show you, humour's not dead. No, actually, I did see another video that... Um, those wonderful people at Led by Donkeys did two great stunts that I saw in the last week. One was to put a blue plaque up outside 50 Tufton Street, where all those right-wing think tanks are, say this is where Liz Truss killed the economy in 2022. And the other one was they put a big sticker on the side of Michelle Moan's yacht that they found in a harbour near Barcelona and changed it to something like um, pandemic, pandemic profiteer. I thought that was good. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about MP candidate selections because we're we're running up into the into the final lap before the general election, whenever that might be, no later than um, the end of next year. Is is that right, or is it this year? Yeah, it's no, next it, year. I think it can be January twenty twenty five, but nobody would do it in January. So no. realistically, the latest date they reckon is I think the fourth of December twenty twenty four. Yeah, think something like that. Okay, so you'll be in a good mood, Chris, on the candidate selections. Uh, your mate Lee Anderson, the leader of the. Thick right, as yeah. I call them, the MP for Ashfield. He's announced that he's going to be standing again to defend his seat. He's been reselected. Yeah, I mean, as I always state on this, he's not my friend. I do think he does Twitter quite well, though. Um, but yeah, he has been reselected. Um, but uh, no, there's, there's been some really interesting yeah, the um, yet, candidate selections. And you mentioned a Twitter account to me called uh, Tomorrow's MPs, yeah, run by Michael Crick. Fascinating. Yeah, it's run by Michael Crick. Really entertaining Twitter account, um, as you'd expect from Crick, because he's quite a, quite a jolly fella. Um, anyway, he provides a running commentary on the long-listing and short-listing processes for candidates for the general election. Note to anyone out there, by the way, Chris, I have now supported three friends of mine, all brilliant Labour women who have been unsuccessful and been beaten by not spectacularly exciting white blokes. So if you want to become an MP... Don't ask me for help. I've got a, a three out of three track record of not succeeding. Anyway, um, what it does show on one hand is you've got the drama of Labour selections all over the country. Lots of people, you know, mediocre or spectacular, all really, really running for these tightly contested micromanaged processes, basically to prevent the nutters getting in. Um, and it provides uh, cheap lines for sympathetic Tory commentators like you. Well, I'm neither sympathetic um, and I'm conservative, the lowercase c, as oh, I okay, keep mentioning. Lowercase something, definitely. Anyway, <laughs> on the Tory side, there's also a scramble to quit politics altogether. Notably, the most recent one, uh, Edward Timpson from the Timpson's key-cutting dynasty. Yeah, we like He's him. the latest to announce that he won't be standing, joining a long list of other palatable Tories like Chris Skidmore, the former HE minister who I did some work with, and my MP, Will Rag. So, uh, yeah, they've basically just had enough. 
And uh, at this rate, they're going to be calling round for ringers at the last minute. Maybe might, you'll even get a well, I might keep tap my, on the shoulder. I might just keep my phone on, actually, just in case I get the call. But, and if you um, want to move to Marple, as you keep name-dropping into the conversation, maybe you could uh, move into Will Rag's office but, but what, and be what, the Tory candidate for Marple. One, one of the things that is interesting, and like I say, and people don't see this with Keir Starmer, is Keir Starmer is making sure that like the 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 troubled, you know, the, the potential MPs who could cause trouble or the potential candidates aren't being included on the long list, are they? Yep, and there was one right. name that you spotted last night that I think is quite interesting. Yeah, so Lee Drennan is going for one of the Bolton seats. He was a leading light in Young Labour in the Northwest. He might even be on the Northwest Steering Committee. Um, I've, I've seen Lee Drennan in action over the years. He's a leading member of Momentum. He was a councillor in Tameside before he lost his seat in Ashtonhurst, which is very close to where Angela Rayner actually lives, incidentally. And uh, yeah, he's not made the long list for Bolton North East, which is currently a Conservative-held seat. He's reported not to have made the long list. I noticed on Twitter he's not confirmed that, but yeah, absolutely. I saw a video that he did uh, on YouTube uh, for Young Labour when he was at the uh, Labour conference right. in 2016. Did, did you like him? No, I didn't like him at all, actually. I thought to myself, you know what? This is the one, this is somebody who would turn people off the Labour Party because he was so strident with his views. And what was interesting, actually, is how many people in the uh, in the auditorium booed him as well. I think the loss of Edward Timpson's a big blow. I think the Conservatives can't afford to leave people, um, lose people of his stature. We mentioned in last week's podcast how many, uh, how many MPs are trying to set themselves up, Tory MPs are trying to set themselves up with media careers as well. Um, and on that note, uh, actually, I think I've got a call actually coming through from Rishi now asking if I'm available for the next general election. On that note, while I answer the phone, we're going to go into our first interval of Northern Spin. Yes, welcome back to the Northern Spin podcast. That was actually, uh, wasn't Rishi Sunak at all. It was Ben Blocker-Houchin apologising, saying he's going to unblock me, but he's going to keep you blocked. Or is he? Now, Michael, you've interviewed thousands, probably millions of CEOs and MDs during your illustrious career. In your experience, how important is a personal assistant or an executive assistant? Yeah, I'm not lying, Chris, when I say that many of the CEOs, MDs or vice chancellors of universities couldn't function without their PA or their executive assistant. A lot of business leaders I know use their PA or EA as a sounding board and are a huge part of their success. Yeah, I think the role of a PA and EA is now business, uh, you know, is now front and centre of a lot of businesses as well. Uh, Lily Shippen is a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff with bases in Manchester. I met them this week and London. Lily Shippen recruit a range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many more. They work with businesses of all sizes and are experts in placing exceptional people with exceptional businesses. They don't just know how to recruit HR, which is one part, but they also know when to recruit as well. So if you're an MD, CEO, or business leader in the North or elsewhere, remember the name Lily Shippen. Lily Shippen. Absolutely. Now, before we talk about On Maneuvers, I want to get your take on a big a big date in the calendar for the property um you know for the property uh, sector and that's MIPM. Now, people who don't involve themselves in property might not know it, but it's a 4-day real estate conference, exhibition and networking event in Cannes that the great and the good will attend. It normally takes place in always takes place in March. It's been hit by covid in the last few years. Councils and companies from across the north will be there. Place Northwest run a list of all the companies will be attending from the north and it really is a who's who. Um, you've been Michael, what's it really like? Is it a uh, expensive junket, pure and simple, or is it where business gets done? Well, as as uh, you've not been, have you? Never been. Uh, I've been waiting for an invite, but not been. <laughs> well, as well as being an upmarket resort, can 
not to call it Cannes, so I am. Cannes, is a convention town. So it's got the Palais de Festival right in the middle. And I've been loads of times actually to Cannes for lots, for six different events that I could top up that I was thinking about. In fact, I did a questionnaire recently for Muckrat, which is a journalist database. And one of the questions was, what's your favorite ever story pitch? And mine was easy. It was, hi, Michael, Roger from Quantel here. How would you like to come to the Cannes Film Festival with us on our private jet? Did you go? Yeah, yeah. of course I did. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. But the, the reality of it, though, apart from one time when I went, there was just a, a company at a conference and they wanted me to present some research that I'd done when I was the editor of a tech magazine. Um, they put me up in the Majestic Hotel, which during the film festival or... Um, or, or MIPIM would be like thousands a night, but they, they put me up in there because it was just them running a conference there. Usually you fly on EasyJet, not on a private jet or a PJ as um, viewers of Succession would know it. Um, and you stay in an Ibis or a, the French equivalent of a travel lodge with the prices absolutely cranked up. But the t here's the thing though, Chris, and I kind of detected it in your introduction as well. There's this absolute teeming resentment that you get. And I used to get it from people back home in the office in the UK. It's absolutely off the scale because all the optics about what MIPIM is, any conference in Cannes. You know, I, I used to go to international conventions in Amsterdam, Las Vegas and Cannes. I mean, it doesn't get more decadent than that, does it? But anyway, MIPIM stands for something that no one can ever remember. M-I-P-I-M. -I -I Most people just regard it as a massive international piss-up in the Mediterranean. Mm. But anyway, interestingly, Andy Spinoza's new book, um, Manchester Unspun, out soon, has a brilliant chapter on how the court of King Howard, Sir Howard Bernstein to everyone else, really consolidated its power around MIPIM by who was prepared to go all the way down to the south of France to have meetings to support the Manchester family in their efforts to promote the city globally. And it really was where connections were made, where um, where bond where bonds were formed, and um, and where the inner circle really started to shape. Yeah, I mean, Gary Neville went a couple of years ago to give a talk as well. He did. Um, He's been a few times. Yeah, yeah. I, I always wanted to go. Um, I am still available if anybody wants me to host events out there. But um, um, on manoeuvres, I, I once hosted an event. I won't tell. I won't say which town, but some towns that weren't core, that weren't Manchester or London or. Barcelona or Milan that's where the big noise is that's where all the excitement is and I we got sponsored to host an event for a, a town in the Midlands and there were actually more people on the panel and in the audience yeah no thing is with Mippen and I've not been but but uh, a lot of the uh, developers will hold back developments just to announce it there because they know they're going to have the platform um, listen talking about platforms and talking about things that really irked me over the weekend and as you know I'm a sociable guy Liz Truss's 4,000 word diatribe in the Sunday Times. We're talking on manoeuvres now. And the first candidate this week is. It was, it was the a left wing podcasters who did it, was it? The former, <laughs> yeah, the former, the former prime minister. Um, people keep saying it's now forty-five days or forty-nine days. Nobody seems to, nobody seems to want to admit how long it was. And she did this four thousand word uh, interview or essay in the. Um, yeah, it was in, an essay, wasn't it? It she, was. She literally wrote it. Yeah, four thousand words without the word sorry. Um, now remember, she was the prime minister who completely crashed the economy. People say to me, "What's your view on Liz Truss?" And I say, "I'm just having to renegotiate my mortgage because it's come up to the end of its uh, five-year cycle." Same. It's costing me an extra £100 
because of her uh, and because of Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget that crashed the economy. Now, she believed you could cut taxes by borrowing billions of pounds, but the markets decided she didn't have a clue what she was talking about. She's kept a very low profile for the last 100 days since resigning. Now it's submerged. She's due to give her first public outing overseas since leaving. She's due to give a talk in Japan, um, which she's uh, going to urge the government to uh, watch China. Um, we know she's been in Washington chewing the fat with like-minded Republicans who share her view on a low-tax agenda. It's worth making a point. Conservatives do believe in a low-tax agenda. It's just now is not the time to do it. Her allies, including former levelling-up minister Simon Clark, who is uh, mates with Ben Blocker-Houchin, have formed a group called the Conservative Growth, uh, Growth Group to push her low-tax agenda. This is the thing, you see. When people talk about friends of Liz Truss, they mention Simon Clark, mention about two others, and that's it. Mm. According to Sky News, a WhatsApp group once used to support Truss's leadership campaign has begun to see several MPs rejoin. I think she's on manoeuvres, and I think she's on manoeuvres for two reasons. First, she's trying to rewrite history, and this really annoys me, so that people don't think she was the worst ever Prime Minister. And just remember, she followed Boris Johnson. I think she'll claim a lot of the problems we're experiencing are the reasons why we need low taxes. I thought her 4,000-word essay in the Sunday Telegraph undermined just why she was a terrible a terrible tin-eared Prime Minister. Secondly, I think she'll try and put pressure on Jeremy Hunt to cut taxes in the next budget. She was described in the in today, that's Monday's copy of the Times, as delusional. She's on manoeuvres. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I know subscribers to this podcast don't subscribe to hear us agree with one another. But basically, I thought, I came away with it thinking, has she got no proper friends? You know, you were mentioning a diminishing number of friends like Simon Clark, but has she got no friends who could actually say, Liz, it's too soon? That Sunday Telegraph 4,000-word essay was just appalling. As you say, it didn't contain any contrition, as, as Liz Kendall said on the Laura Koonsberg show at the weekend. No humility and slating the left-wing financial establishment yeah. for, as, as doing her in. Pre presumably, it's a bit like the, the, the what did she call it, the anti-growth coalition. I just think she's a moron. No contrition that people's mortgages have quadrupled. No humility that she was completely out of her depth intellectually. And if anyone listening to this podcast, watching us two, bumbling away through this podcast, ever suffers from imposter syndrome, just take a look at Liz Truss. Because don't fret, if an emotionally unintelligent imbecile like that can become the prime minister of this country, then reach for the stars, my friends. Reach for the stars. Can I just thank Liz Trust because we, myself and Michael, have been brought together by your incompetence. Um, so, and I and I don't do personal attacks, but I just looked at that interview, and oh, I looked at the essay, and I just thought to myself, she just doesn't get it. And actually, yeah. if you're passionate about trying to do something positive for the Conservative Party, do nothing. Yeah, because shut up. You're an embarrassment. Now, okay. Who, yep. Who else is on manoeuvres? Well, this is another one actually, and I think we're going to get an interesting view on this. This one's a bit left field, quite literally. <laughs> Former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Now. It's worth saying, before I give my reasons, um, I think it might be helpful if you explain why Labour, why Labour removed the whip sure. from him, because he's currently a independent MP. Yeah, and the Unite leader, Sharon Graham, uh, said on the Laura Koonsberg show this weekend that he should be allowed to stand for Labour in Islington North in the next election. Um, anyway, so there was a report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, commissioned not by Keir Starmer, but by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And it ruled that the party was institutionally racist. Now, rather than accept the findings that under his watch, 
that that set of circumstances had come about. Corbyn's reaction was to deny it and claim such claims were exaggerated by his opponents for political purposes. Now, I could bore for Britain on this one. I've written extensively on the whole anti-Semitism dispute in Labour and how it made Jewish people feel. And I think what it clearly highlighted for me about Jeremy Corbyn is his blind spot when it comes to Jewish people. He doesn't see how denying them the legitimacy of their offence is in itself offensive, despite being given ample opportunities to clarify, to apologise to the Jewish community in this country he chooses not to, and instead feeds the mob, making it all about him. Yeah, I mean, there was an interview that he did this week, and the reason that I've put him on manoeuvres this week is that um, I listened to the News Agents podcast, and he did an interview on Friday, and and he's gone quiet, hasn't he? He's gone quiet. It, you know, he's used as the butt of um, you know Rishi Sunak's attacks at PMQs, and he's suddenly done this interview uh, on uh, the News Agents as well. I think he has become an embarrassment to Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, and we're going to come at it from a slightly different view because. Um, you know, having gone quiet for all this period of time, he suddenly put his head above the parapet. Now, obviously, if he is an independent, he can't stand as a Labour Party MP at the next election, which I think would be his 11th. Now, the Daily Mail, um, a uh, publication I know you read most days, uh, say he's begging to be allowed to stand for the Labour Party in the next general election. I'm not sure about that. The Daily Express headline is that Jeremy Corbyn blasts Starmer as he demands to stand for Labour at the next election. Now, I'm going to be super cynical here, super duper cynical. I think what Corbyn's trying to do is to put some distance between him and Starmer for Starmer's benefit. And the reason I say that for is I wonder whether or not he's saying, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll put some blue sky between me and you. Um, but he's also saying to the Labour Party, I'm still here. I want to stand at the next election in Islington for Labour. Let's make it happen and I won't be an embarrassment to you. Do you agree? I don't think he's capable of that level of intellectual mind games. Um, I think that's nonsense, if I'm honest. He doesn't like Starmer. On the News Agents um, podcast, he was quite clear when he was saying Starmer's no friend of mine, that he was surprised when Starmer described himself as a friend of Jeremy Corbyn uh, when he was standing for leader. I, I, do, I don't think Starmer covered himself in glory when he was basically trying to um, harvest the votes of the far left during the lead, Labour leadership election. I think it's created a lot of problems for himself. Um, but generally, no, I, I just think he's, he's just desperate to stand again, to give him, he's like George Galloway, another preening narcissist. He just wants to, he just wants his, his place in parliament. Do you know what? There is no law in this country that Jeremy Corbyn has ever brought forward that has made people's lives any better. He's just a protester. He's just a student protester. Yeah. He said that, uh, he was asked a question, will he retire? And he said, I retire when I die basically and you thought think to yourself well that's about you again um, it is it's all about him he just loved it didn't he so liz truss and jeremy starmer have have uh jeremy starmer, jeremy corbyn, jeremy corbyn. <laughs> um sorry to uh sorry to embarrass you kiss time if you want to sue me feel free but we've got no money um so uh jeremy corbyn and liz truss have brought us together on northern spin an unlikely mix of people that I wouldn't want to see at a dinner table. So uh, thank you very much to you two. They're both on manoeuvres. That's the end of uh, part two of this episode of Northern Spin. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back.
back to the third and final part of Northern Spin, episode 10 of season two. In a moment, I'm going to talk to uh, to my good friend Michael Taylor, who's wearing a three-piece suit, about my trip to Marple, where I can reveal there isn't a statue to Mr. Taylor. But on a serious note, I was very sad to see that the curtain might be coming down on Oldham's Coliseum Theatre. That is sad news, and I know you're particularly perplexed by it. Yeah, so Oldham Coliseum Theatre has cancelled all its performances after the Arts Council turned its three-year bid for funding down. It's not a good look for Oldham. I got in touch with Will Lees-Jones, the chair of Oldham's town team, and I got a sense, a real sense, that all's not well in the kingdom of Oldham. We did a story on the business desk, which was one of our best read last week, and I noticed the at the launch of the Oldham Independent Economic Review last year, where there was some real optimism, honesty, soul-searching that was all convened by my, my good friend, Andy Westwood, professor and ex-government advisor. There's some real thinking in Oldham about how we can sort of make our place, bring some pride back and, and bring the institutions of the town together. But he told me last week that given the precariousness of organisations like Oldham Coliseum, you would think the government would have a levelling up emergency fund or at least be more joined up about how different funding bodies support it. But alas, not. So the actor Maxine Peake has pushed a petition. But here's the thing, though. It's not just to save Oldham Coliseum. The 8,000 signatures and counting that have signed up for this aren't just directed towards the Art Council, asking them to rethink their decision, but they're very critical of Oldham's lack of foresight on this issue. They're supposed to be working up a plan for a £5 million new art centre in the town. But the trustees have got themselves in this short-term mess with the theatre that they can't seem to fund. Now, the, the key part, part about this, and I'm sure you'll recognise this, I've been a, a local newspaper journalist in the community that you live in in Chorley, places need cultural assets. They need, they could be job creators, but also they just make people feel proud. They make people feel good about the town that they're in. Where we live in Marple is a small amateur theatre, a single screen cinema, lots of community groups, more than in most other wards in the Stockport Metropolitan Borough, by the way. And you have to support them. You know, the, the life of a community depends on all these sorts of things. I have actually been to your theatre. I've been to Chorley Little Theatre. It's not my theatre. It's not like it's called Chris's Theatre. But No, uh, but it's in Chorley. It's yeah, in your it is, town. Yeah, it's called yeah. the Chorley Little Theatre. Yeah. I didn't see you there, though, but that was before you were into politics. No. <clears throat> no. I mean, I'm a I massive... I see Matt Ford, by the way. Matt Ford. Who's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, but what people might not necessarily realise is a lot of the uh, top performers, a lot of the comedians, um, you know, people like... Um, uh, John Bishop. <laughs> John Bishop. He's performed there. Uh, and what they do, they, they practice uh, on an audience of 200. Yeah, and then they just yeah. fine-tune their... Chart, fine their in their act um yeah i mean like when i was the editor of the Chorley uh, guardian the first thing i did was uh work with people like Chorley little theater and, and and the football club as well uh and they are they are the fabric of the community and um and the reason i mentioned the football club as well is because northern agenda with uh, rob parsons did a really interesting piece about a study by an organization called open goal in partnership with northern research group which says that unless action is taken a lot of football clubs in the north face an uncertain future and when i became the editor of the Chorley guardian the first thing that i did uh, the football club Chorley football club obviously the magpies, was, the magpies. yeah yeah it was uh, it was facing um, severe threat i mean it's been going for over 100 years and i launched a campaign called save our magpies and we raised 17000 pound which seems like a drop in the ocean um, but it was enough to sort of galvanize the community and get it behind the club and you look at the club now I mean, they're getting 1,500 people to a game. Are they National League North? Yeah, I think it's the yeah, fifth tier of, uh, of football. And sixth. Yeah, sixth. They, they had the opportunity. They went up, but they were one of only three teams in that league who weren't full-time. Yeah, and the hard, manager. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, the manager, Jamie Vermiglio, was the head teacher of a local school. Yeah. He wasn't prepared to give up his career in order to manage a team, you know, knowing how, 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 uh, you know, how reckless and how uh, short-sighted uh, football can be. But um, it's just football is like theatres. It's the fabric of the community. Yeah, well, we all know what happened with Berry FC. But, but although we've, we've ducked the trans issue, haven't we? We don't yeah. really want to go there because we're a bit frightened, really. Yeah, we are. Um, we, you've kind of ducked out of the anti-Semitism discussion. So I'm seriously advising you that don't go there with the yeah. two groups claiming to be Berry Football Club. Yeah. On one hand, you've got the Liberation Front for Football in Berry, yeah. and on the other, you've got the Football Front for Berry Liberation or something like that, or the Supporters Trusts. Yeah, we've always said when we try and do this podcast, we want to try and add some insight. And <clears throat> we've touched briefly on the whole trans issue. And I don't think we can add any value to it in a five-minute conversation. No, that's Anti Anti-Semitism as well. It's such a massive conversation. How can we offer any insight into it as two middle-aged white guys? I don't think we can. In terms yeah. of football, I think that's slightly different. And I was a consultant in Rochdale for two years. And I got to know the people at Rochdale AFC, the football club, really well, actually. Um, and I look at that football club and I worry. I I really do worry. What Open Goal highlighted is that in the North, one third of league clubs uh, are based in the North, but two fifths of administrations occur in the North. We saw the difficulties that Bolton faced. I come from Kent. The only league team that we had in Kent was uh, was Gillingham. So I used to support, I used to support a non-league team called Dover. Um, so we didn't have any great allegiances to any football clubs down there. Where I live in Chorley, we're within probably 10 miles of about 10 or 12 different clubs. Um, I look at the situation at Rochdale, quick recap, a company called Morton House wanted to buy the club, but the fans rebelled. The club is now completely fan owned. I got to know the former CEO, David Bottomley, pretty well. He's been demonized by a vocal number of fans. I don't know all the ins and outs of what went on. What I do know is they're now languishing at the bottom of League Two. They're in danger of dropping out of the league. Their chairman, Simon Gage, is desperately trying to find new investors, which is the same thing that David Bottomley said to me about three years ago. Rochdale were badly hit by COVID. Look, it's not that long ago since they played at Man United and they lost 2-1 in their cup game. And then they played Newcastle, which I went to, where I met Andy Burnham on the following Saturday. They've had to sell their best players to survive. They lost 2-1 to Moneybag Salford City um, on Saturday. They're now four points adrift at bottom of League Two. They've played 29 games. I'm seriously worried about the future of Rochdale Football Club and it would be a massive loss because they are a huge community asset. Yeah, well, I only had to uh, see for myself when I was working in Stockport about how much the the opposite fortunes of Stockport County with their successive promotions have really helped lift the morale in that place. Do you know, Chris, at one point there was a plan to merge Oldham, Bury, and Rochdale and form one club, North Manchester United or something like that. This sort of thing, by the way, goes on in Scotland quite a lot. But of the of the three, um, only, Day only Rochdale are in the league now. And when, um, when Blackburn Rovers were in League One in 2017-2018, we played Rochdale, Bury, and Oldham. In fact, Oldham beat us. And, um, and now, of course, you know, they could all be in the National League next year, or even Oldham, look the way they're going, they could be in National League North down there with Chorley. It doesn't help as well that um, Blackburn Rovers failed to complete the transfer of a young player from Rochdale during the transfer window, which when the club gave a statement, they said, you know, not getting this transfer through is really bad for us. We wanted the player. The player wanted to come. But more importantly, it's really, really important for clubs like Rochdale to be able to recycle players and make make money by passing them on. I mean, it's, it's how every club works, isn't it? I mean, 
you know, apart from perhaps Man City and Real Madrid, every club in the world that's, and Chelsea, every club in the world at some point sells to uh, make some income. Rochdale had a player, a young player called Luke Matheson. He was a lad who scored for Rochdale at Man United at Old Trafford as well. Um, but um, now we're sitting next to each other on this podcast. We do every Monday as well. But fairly soon, Michael, we might be living together. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. So tell, us, tell everybody about your trip to Marple. Yeah, I mean, do you not want to live with me? No. No, okay. So I went to Marple because it's something that you evangelize about uh, most weeks on your, uh, you know, through social media. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm going to visit it. I had to see a, a business down there as well. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, I loved it. Fantastic canal. I mean, it always helps when the sun's out. And uh, I didn't know that a personal hero of my childhood uh, was from Marple, Timmy Mallet. Ah, well, I knew that, of course. Uh, in fact, recently I heard um, an amazing interview that Timmy Mallet did when he was a DJ on Piccadilly Radio with Terry Hall, who was the lead singer of the specials who sadly died recently. Um, but Timmy had done an interview with him on Piccadilly Radio where he gave Terry a couple of hours to pick his favourite records, and it's just absolute radio gold. But a few other people, if I could raise you, Bill Grundy, the man who got the Sex Pistols to swear on uh, Thames TV. His son, Tim, as well, a TV and radio presenter as well. And, of course, the late, great Anthony H. Wilson, who lived just off Strines Road. Um, where did you go when you were in Marple? Well, we're taking that to lunch at a place called the Norfolk Arms. And the guy that I was with said to me, Chris, you've got to have one of their legendary pies. I ate it last Monday. Fairly soon, I, I, I won't feel so full again. It was it was huge. Uh, and it was just a really nice place. And actually, you talk about pubs. It's just a great feel about it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the Norfolk's great. My eldest son, Joe, worked there for a while. Um, my son, my other, youngest son, Elliot, works at the Scott, which is another pub just down the road from where you were in Marple Bridge. And incidentally, I... I often get invited to host what's called community dinners for delegate delegates to this leadership organization called the Forward Institute. And they say, oh, can you host these dinners, these people to experience what life's like for people in the north of England? Can they come to your house for tea? The short answer is no, no one comes to my house for tea, except William Rag, he's invited. Um, but I took them to the Norfolk two years running and they really, people really loved it. It's great. It's really, it's really um, folksy, isn't it? Yeah, you're really nice. Yeah, yeah. But fundamentally, it's about the quality of the food. Yeah, so it's a good, good spot that you picked that one. The food was sensational. Yeah. So anyway, my excitement recently was heightened by the fact that Roddy Frame from Aztec Camera, one of my favourite bands, he used to live in Millbrow, just above Marple Bridge, where you were, when he was writing the Love album, which came out in 1987. Johnny Marr from the Smiths, lived in Marple Bridge for a bit. And the Stone Roses lived on Strines Road when they were recording Second Coming, their difficult second album. But of course, Chris, all of that will be a complete mystery to you because you've never heard of any of them. No, I have. I've because heard of my one. attempts to give you a northern cultural education have all come to nothing. I've heard of one. I've heard of one of them. Aztec Camera. What was their big hit? Somewhere in my heart. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to remember. I was going to sing it, but then I thought oh, we do want to encourage more subscribers. I remember playing a football, a uh, cricket match in Kent uh, for my school team against Chatham House and Aztec Cameras somewhere in my heart was playing out across across the pitch I got out soon afterwards and I'm still blaming that song <laughs> uh, for the reason for my dismissal so have you got any other shallow cultural recommendations yeah, for us this I have week? actually um, I've been going to the cinema quite a lot this year actually and uh, last week I went to watch The Fablemans which is based on the early life of Steven Spielberg very very good some brilliant performances by the young actor called Gabrielle LaBelle who plays essentially the young Steven Spielberg albeit that's not his name in the film Michelle Williams is amazing Paul Dano plays Spielberg's father he was amazing 
amazing. But there was this guy, I was watching it, I'm thinking, I know that guy, I know that guy. And uh, I couldn't identify him, Seth Rogen. Um, <laughs> that was great, brilliant. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, in terms of references of things that I've uh, listened to or watched this week, I'm a massive podcast fan and uh, I love true crime. So I listened to BBC Sounds, uh, BBC Sounds' new one. Uh, it's a gangster. It's called Gangster. They've done three so far. They've done Paul Massey. Um, Curtis Warren. Curtis Warren. That was really good as well. The one they've done this one, the third one, is John Goldfinger Palmer. And uh, if you like true crime, you'll love this. What have you watched, listened to or, uh, or, uh, or viewed recently? Well, Happy Valley. But no spoilers, right? Have you watched it? Yeah, I watched it yesterday. Uh, yeah. well, it's recording on the Monday. You yeah. watched it. Um... Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I st- there was a tense part of it at the beginning um, where we thought it could get violent. And I said to Rachel, it's not going to, you know, this final episode, and, and they're not going to do any more, is all about the acting. Yeah. And I just knew there was going to be a tense, long scene with James Norton and Sarah Lancashire as the two central characters in it. And it, it was amazing actually about how so many of the other um, sort of plot lines just got resolved like that. Do you not think though, I mean, i say once again, we're not going to uh, spoil it for those people who haven't watched it yet, but I watched Sarah Lancashire and James Norton and I actually tried to think, who do I think is a better actor or actress than them two? Because you listen to James Norton, he's quite well spoken. He was sensational. But Sarah Lancashire... If ever they make a remake, if ever they turn Liz Truss's life into a film, <laughs> I want Sarah Lancashire to play Liz Truss because oh. I think she could bring us to life. Actually, and talking about talking about um, Sarah Lancashire, um, you're going on a fresh walk fairly soon to Hebden Bridge, and once yes. again, we don't want to give anything away. But you could completely ruin that fresh walks. We could find three bodies in a field. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly could. I, I've also been. Um, uh, I'm thinking about putting together a true crime podcast, actually. It's given me a few ideas for uh, some of the stories that I've been working on recently. I really enjoyed Alice Levine's podcast from last year about Russell King's takeover of Notts County and his bizarre plot to float a company with mining rights in North Korea. I mean, that's just absolutely bizarre, and it's really well put together. I have started listening to Goldfinger as well, and I do like it. I've also been watching Early Doors, and I'd be interested to know what you think, and I think I should set you some homework because it's now available back on the BBC iPlayer, having not been for a while. It's Craig Cash who wrote The Royal Family, you know, Dave. Yeah, yeah. It's set in a pub in Stockport, and it's just incredible writing and insight, and happily, as I said, back on the BBC iPlayer. Because what was interesting about that, of course, is a lot of people gave all the credit um, for the royal family to Carolina Hearn, the late great yeah. Carolina Hearn. Yeah, quite rightly but, too. But people didn't realise that it was a it was written uh, in yeah. conjunction with Craig Cash. Um, very good. He in lives in of... Marple Bridge as well, by the way. No, Does he? He lives in Mellor, which is. I tell you what, a, the continu- reasons, a, a continuation. The reasons for me to move to Marple are growing. Incidentally, if anybody wants me to move to Marple, please sign the petition. Well, when we've got our roof done, we might put the house on the market. So you're very welcome if you well, can find the money. I couldn't afford, couldn't afford it. I don't think. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, actually, I, I will watch that. Early doors with Craig Cash. I will watch that on BBC's iPlayer. Yeah, very funny. Maxine Peake's in it as well, who we mentioned earlier as well. So that's it. That's it for the tenth and final episode of season two. It's a season finale. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, what we're going to do, we're going to come back next week. Next week? And we're just going to call it do season three. Do, we not, do I not get a break from you? No, you get a seven-day break until oh, next Monday. Well, actually, we've got a by-election to talk about, haven't we? Yeah. West Lancashire goes to the polls on February the 9th to elect a successor to Rosie Cooper. Yeah. It's going to uh, be Labour, isn't it? Well, I tell you what, if it's not Labour, we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> anyway, please, please follow us. Give us a review. 
Tell all your friends about us. And don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow Eight, us on Twitter. 18% increase in subscribers we've had. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Keep saying that. Follow us on Twitter at northern underscore spin one. Watch us on YouTube. Yeah, and thank you to uh, thank you to our sponsors, of course. Thank you to What Media. Yeah, and, and uh, thanks to Oscar Technology, Lily Shippen, Elliot for providing the music in between working in the Scott in Marple Bridge. And my name is Michael Taylor. And my name, as always, is Happy Chappy Chris McGuire. <laughs>